If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Professor Aaron Tang to discuss his new book, Supreme Hubris, How Overconfidence is Destroying the Court and How We Can Fix It, published by Yale University Press in 2023. The American public's confidence in the United States Supreme Court is at a historic low in part based on a belief that the Supreme Court is increasingly behaving as a partisan political body. Legal scholar Aaron Tang argues that partisanship is not the best lens for understanding the Supreme Court. He focuses on overconfidence. According to Professor Tang, the legal arguments of both conservative and liberal justices have a tone of uncompromising certainty. As the court, quote, lurches stridently from one case to the next, close quote, It delegitimizes opposing views and undermines public confidence in the court itself. Restoring the court's public legitimacy requires the justices to adopt what Professor Tang calls a least harm rule. Examining a range of cases from LGBTQ rights to immigration to juvenile justice, Tang demonstrates how the least harm principle can provide a promising and legally grounded framework for the difficult cases that divide the United States. But this is not work exclusively for the justices. Reform depends upon the voters. They must elect representatives who pass legislation that clarifies the public will for the Supreme Court. Professor Aaron Tang is a law professor at the University of California, Davis, and a former law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. He is a frequent commentator about the Supreme Court, whose op-eds appear in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Slate, The Atlantic, and elsewhere. And I'm delighted to welcome him to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me, Susan. So you describe 2023 as a, quote, dire moment for the Supreme Court's legitimacy, close quote. So as a legal scholar, what's What's different about the Supreme Court now as compared to 10, 40, or 100 years ago? Sure. So I'll start with what's not different. Um, Partisanship is not different. We've always had Supreme Court justices who are partisan. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Supreme Court justices are appointed by presidents who are a member of a political party. They can only be confirmed with enough votes from the member of the same political party. So it shouldn't surprise us when Republican appointed justices vote reliably in favor of Republican preferred causes and Democrat appointed justices do the opposite. There are lots of historical moments when we've had very partisan courts from the New Deal to our very first 
uh, very most important chief justice, not first, but most important chief justice, John Marshall was extremely partisan. Um, so what I want to suggest is different is today's justices are more confident, more certain that they alone can answer all of the big questions that divide our society, moral questions, policy questions, with just the right lawyer's argument. And that, I think, is what's really different. And and when do you think that happened? I mean, you started at the, uh, the beginning of the court with John Marshall, and we're kind of in where we are in 2023 yeah. when we're recording this. Um, and, and this is the first Monday in October, I'll just mention to everybody, the sure, court yeah. is opening up. So what, what, when, when did this change happen? Did it happen all at once? Is this something that uh, happened in waves? What, what does it look like? Sure, that's a great uh, way of describing it, actually, waves. Just like much of history, uh, this is kind of a cyclical pattern over time, over uh, American history. We've had court, Supreme Courts that have been very confident, um, and then public backlash ensues, and the court dials down its confidence, um, right? So maybe one of the most overconfident and reckless Supreme Court decisions in history is Dred, Dred Scott versus Sanford in 1857, where Chief Justice Roger Taney writes an opinion, thinking he can solve the whole slavery problem for the United States uh, by striking down the Missouri Compromise, right? It leads to a civil war, a uh, very embarrassing moment for the Supreme Court. It, it's humbled for a period of time. After another 20 or 30 years, it becomes overconfident again uh, in the early 1900s, humbled in 1937, right? So it's, it's cyclical. It goes in waves. Um, I would say that our current bout of uh, hyper overconfidence has grown in recent years with grand constitutional theories like originalism uh, proliferating. But, um, and this makes it kind of a little bit of a complicated explanation. The beginnings of it actually happen, uh, confidence at the Supreme Court happens for good reasons. It happens in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s when the justices do need to say that, yes, we can give you a single correct answer on the big issue of the day, which is segregated public schools. Uh, and the correct answer is the constitution forbids them. And the problem is once the Supreme Court thinks it can answer that very hard question in the way that it must, right? Um, the brakes are off and uh, uh, other justices uh, believe they can offer similarly certain answers on a range of issues from gun rights to campaign finance to re religious freedom and, and so on and so forth. So uh, I have two questions. Uh, one, uh, you mentioned the 1900s, and, and lots of people see the Lochner court as a kind of an overconfident court as well. Maybe they don't use your language. And it's interesting how your language can map on to previous understandings we've had, which is always a good sign for uh, a, a new framework or a new narrative. But also, uh, what happened in between civil rights and the present court. And, and let's do those two things separately, because I think they, they, they help bring out a lot of what you're doing in part one, which is dedicated to figuring out when did the court become overconfident. And you don't have this sort of like, aha, it just happened. Yeah, the right. Brown There's versus no Ward was, excited, was excited. Yeah. So let's do the first part. What happened sure. in the 1900s that, yeah. that is also about overconfidence? You bet. So uh, in the early 1900s, you have a Supreme Court that happens to be conservative too, although as you noted in the introduction, I don't think overconfidence is just a problem on the right. It happens that right now there are six conservative justices, so their overconfidence leads to a particular outcome. Um, but in the early 19s, you had an overconfident conservative Supreme Court telling the American people all of the answers on the big issues of the day. And the biggest issues of that time period were economic. They were questions like, can Congress or can a state legislature ban child labor? 
that there's a huge child labor problem. Hundreds of thousands of children are getting injured or even killed in you know, dangerous mines and railroad jobs. Uh, could Congress, uh, it's a big question at the time, pass a minimum wage law? Could states pass minimum wage laws? And many people, American people, thought the answer was yes. Congress, the states ought to be able to ban child labor and enact a minimum wage. But uh, six conservative justices, very confident in their own wisdom, said, no, you can't. The American people are powerless to do this because we interpret the Constitution as enshrining this liberty of contract, right? Uh, a freedom, this is the Lochner era of cases, uh, that only Supreme Court justices can identify and discern, answering that big question of the day. And that upsets the American people. Uh, if you fast forward a few decades to the 1930s, right, deregu- uh, a very laissez-faire sort of economic framework leads to the Great Depression. The people, American people elect FDR. Uh, and it's only FDR and the American people sort of uh, 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 uprising, they're voting in mass, their election of Democrats to the House and Senate to put pressure on the Supreme Court that disciplines and humbles the justices to take a much different approach uh, uh, no longer in the 1930s, starting in 1937, does the Supreme Court say it has all these answers and instead defers to legislatures, allowing them to enact these economic laws. Okay. So um, uh, you, you mentioned 1937. So ju- just tell everybody who hasn't read the book uh, what you mean. What What's the case? What's, what's that moment? Sure. So I'll, I'll mention what happened in 1937, but I also want to uh, uh, prime readers to think about, huh, I wonder if these are things that could happen in 2024 or two or 2025, right? So in 1936, uh, uh, the Supreme Court, 1935, this, actually the Supreme Court issues a pair of decisions in this overconfident vein. It strikes down a huge uh, uh, New Deal law aimed at rescuing the agricultural sector, sec- uh, sector. It strikes down a law regulating industry as well. And in the very next election, 1936, the American people just respond in droves. They they get out the vote. They reelect FDR with a 60% vote share. They deliver a huge supermajority in the House and the Senate. And they are very much voting. If you read the papers at the time, even FDR campaigned on this, they're voting against the Supreme Court and its anti-regulatory agenda. Something, another interesting thing happens after lawmakers are elected in 1936. They don't go back home and start campaigning for office and raising money right away. They pass actual laws, right, Susan? They pass a new version of the uh, of the very kind of industrial and agricultural regulations that Congress has just struck down. They change them a little bit, and they're basically saying, "Strike this down again. See what happens, Supreme Court. We're going to force you to keep doing this over and over again, being becoming less and less popular, or we'll give you a chance to change your mind." Um, the court changes its mind. It, it it switches in 1937 in a case called Jones and Laughlin Steel, uh, and also another case called West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. These are two the two big cases uh, on the right to unionize and a minimum wage law. Uh, two of the six justices who had been striking down these kinds of economic regulations switch their vote. They instead defer, trust the wisdom of Congress, state legislatures, uh, uh, and they adopt this new approach, a much humbler approach saying, you know what, maybe there are these hard economic policies. We don't pretend like we have special insight. The Constitution doesn't magically answer these questions. We're going to trust others, elected officials, uh, to answer those questions. And that's the sort of uh, switch in time that saves nine is the phrase. Uh, And the hope in the book is that the American people can do something similar today if we are just as upset about an overconfident Supreme Court uh, in recent years. Thanks. No, that's really, really clear. And we've we've used this word overconfidence a lot. And I think uh, what's uh, helpful about the word in the book 
is that it is a simple word and people already understand it just from hearing it. However, you have a, a deeper definition. So before we go any further, what, what is judicial overconfidence? What, what do you mean by the term? Sure. Uh, so I think one way of thinking about it is to think about the kinds of cases that get to the Supreme Court. These are not easy, obvious cases with clear, single, obvious answers. Almost all of the cases that get to the Supreme Court are there because they've divided lower court federal judges uh, who are very, very uh, smart judges, you know, um, uh, brilliant lawyers, right? If anybody can figure out the answers, they would be able to figure out the answers, but they couldn't agree. You know, some judges think the answer is one thing. Some judges think the answer is the other. The Supreme Court is called on to clarify them. And if you read the briefs in these cases, I have a story in the uh, in the book about how when I was a law clerk, I would read the briefs and I would just be so puzzled because there's such good arguments on both sides. Judicial overconfidence is the belief that the Supreme Court justices increasingly have today that they can read these very technical, very difficult cases, these briefs, and magically discern the one single correct answer that nobody else could figure out. No other judge, no lawyers, the American public couldn't figure out. And they can proclaim that answer for all 330 million of us in America, settling that uh, 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 answer once and for all. When in truth, the answer is, it's a hard question. The law doesn't clearly answer so many of these difficult issues. Yeah, you write in the book, quote, gone now are the days of the justices granting every possible presumption in favor of upholding a law, even when they hold views inconsistent with the law's wisdom, as the court did in 1937 on minimum wage. So what's, what's interesting is there you can sort of understand what overconfidence is by thinking about the opposite um, and what it would mean in a way to defer, I think you're arguing, uh, to the will of the people. Um, I also want to say that I really like the part in the book where you're talking about yourself as a clerk, uh, reading both sides and thinking, yes, that's such a good argument. Yes, that's such a good <laughs> argument. Because I think that really describes a lot of us uh, scholars and students of the court who have read those uh, opinions and have felt like, wow, that's a really good argument. Hey, and that's a really good argument. And, and why that's gone, why uh, the opinions seem so uh, political, so partisan, so uh, steeping with ideology. You mentioned originalism earlier. We've talked a lot about originalism on this podcast, and everybody who's a regular listener knows my feeling, which is that it's a very, very young and very, very radical idea. We don't really see it uh, used by the court until the 1980s, so it can't be seen as a tradition of this court. And it comes with a lot of baggage. So also originalism. Uh, I'm not sure what the uh, parallel would be in the court's history of an approach to, to rule that swept and, and had that kind of um, confidence. And so do you think that there's anything that, that overconfidence also has to do with having something like originalism or textualism, something that yeah. makes you feel very, very confident of your methodology? I think that's a very astute observation, Susan. I think uh, one reason uh, overconfidence has gotten worse and the court's legitimacy has suffered as a result is the marriage of this uh, uh, belief among the justices that they can deliver answers to big problems, plus the fact they think they have a perfect method. 
right? And so for conservatives, it's originalism. Uh, for uh, uh, liberals, you know, you're right that there's not like a clear singular term that's as uh, maybe as uh, simple as originalism. But generally, the idea on the left has been living constitutionalism or the notion that we can update the meaning of vague terms in the Constitution, that justices can update them based on how society's views evolve over time. Um, uh, both of these theories, though, uh, lead to this problem, right? Um, if you didn't think you had a perfect method, you didn't think you could answer hard constitutional questions by looking at old history books, or you didn't think you could answer these hard questions by looking out at society and discerning some new magical consensus, you might be more willing to be humble. You might be willing to say, gosh, this is a hard question. There's good arguments on both sides. Rather than trying to uh, uh, impose a single answer on all of America, maybe we ought to do something like issue a decision that will do the least harm possible. Make sure losing groups have ways that they can protect their interests because we might get it wrong, right? Um, that's the approach the court has taken sometimes. I talk about some of the cases in the book. It doesn't do it much anymore because of theories like originalism and living constitutionalism. I want to talk about the least harm principle and how it is that you come about it and actually a little bit about your methodology before I do that because this is New Books in Political Science. I, I want to push back on you just a tiny, tiny bit about why now is different. So we've had a lot of political scientists and some legal scholars on this show who have said, this isn't the reason. So um, we've had Steve Vladek here saying, actually, it's shadow docket. It's, it's a structural change in how certain cases are coming to the Supreme Court and whether the court even has to give the explanations that you're calling for them to ask. Uh, we've had other people here claiming that, well, this is actually about the Federalist Society. It's it's about being able to identify and groom justices for the Supreme Court the moment they step onto a law school campus, and then to have the data to be able to create a list for a president so that they might be quite confident of the votes that would be taken because of adherence to a particular uh, methodology for deciding, which is a little bit different than the chances that other presidents took. And we know on both sides that they made mistakes. Um, Eisenhower was not necessarily pleased with all the decisions that Warren made. Every FDR, every Nixon appointment didn't go the, the, the way the president might have imagined. So I think, I think so one question would be, um, Aren't things a little different than the civil rights? Is is it is it just that, or are these other things part of how you think yeah, about? Yeah, no, I think it's totally fair. I don't want to uh, uh, suggest to you that there's a single root cause that explains all of the pathologies at the Supreme Court and that it's overconfidence bias. That would be too much of an overclaim. Uh, and in fact, I, I what I try to argue in the book that the way overconfidence is so destructive is not that just overconfidence by itself leads to you know uh, strident opinions, and that's the problem because frankly. Frankly, many Americans don't read Supreme Court opinions. Um, it's that overconfidence blocks the justices uh, from taking a more cautious approach. It unleashes, if you listen to behavioral economists like Danny Kahneman, right, the reason why he thinks overconfidence bias is the most dangerous, most damaging of all cognitive uh, psychological traps that we were victim to is it unleashes other biases that, uh, were, uh, that we succumb to, like partisanship. 
right? I think overconfidence is bad because it makes partisanship so much worse. You mentioned a couple other theories, and I want to suggest to you that they're all interconnected, right? The shadow docket, to me, uh, uh, I think Steve's written an amazing book, and um, he's shined such an important light on this new feature of how the court is issuing so many of of its society-changing decisions. But notice that it doesn't happen. It doesn't exist without overconfidence. What is the shadow docket other than five or six justices on the Supreme Court saying, we don't need oral argument. We don't need full briefing. We can read this five, 10 pages of a, an emergency application in one night, and we can answer this question for all of society. We can issue a decision changing the ground rules on abortion or COVID protections because we just know the answer, right? That's uh, overconfidence in a nutshell. Um, I think the Federalist Society, is a, it plays a role in this. I think it is what's creating, it's helped to create a culture, a legal culture in which one side, uh, you know, judicial conservatives believe they have this method that unlocks all of the answers, uh, originalism, uh, and, you know, exacerbates overconfidence. So in that sense, maybe the FedSoc is part of the reason why we have this problem. So uh, um, maybe that's as much of the root as anything. But I, but they all sort of connect to each other um, uh, in a way that, you know, has led us to this current precipice. No, and I think that that's useful for all of all scholarship to uh, look at the places where you overlap, the places where you you know um, go in different directions. Because I think that's that's what helps us ultimately understand all of this and coming at it with different methodologies from legal scholarship, from political science, from social psychology, from economics, from sociology, from so many other places is what really allows us to have a, a, a far better lens. Before we talk about what we're going to do about this and the least harm principle and how you and you figured out the least harm principle, I just want to ask you a little bit about your method, how you do your research, what kind of documents do you look at, how long ago did you start the book, did you start the uh, book with this idea of overconfidence or did the book evolve to focus on overconfidence based on the materials you were looking at? Sure. Uh, so... Um... The book uh, started as a um, uh, project somewhat like a, like a week before the pandemic and then the pandemic hits. And so, you know, I've got two little kids, so things took a lot longer to write uh, <laughs> than they might have otherwise. Um, but uh, if I had to point to like one moment where um, maybe the, the idea for the book really germinated, it's a moment in the summer of 2020. Uh, at that point, remember, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't, had not passed away. So the court's very different. There, there's four cons- reliable conservatives, four reliable liberals, a chief, very conservative individual, but more of a, uh, you know, a, a median swing type vote. Um, and the court issues a string of four or five decisions on huge issues in the summer of 2020 on DACA, the immigration case, on whether uh, Title VII of the federal uh, civil rights law uh, protects uh, uh, gay, lesbian, and transgender employees from discrimination, a pair of cases involving subpoenas to Donald Trump. And it reaches sometimes conservative, sometimes progressive outcomes. Everybody's surprised. Um, uh, and after that term, the court's public approval rating is a record high, hard to imagine, just three years ago, we're now at a record low, but three years ago, 58% of Americans approved of the work the court was doing, 60% of Democrats, 56% of Republicans, right, bipartisan. And as I started reading those opinions, there's this common thread in them. The Chief Justice is, is, is John Roberts is the, uh, um, the common denominator in all these opinions. He writes many of these opinions. And almost all of these big cases, the Chief Justice is not 
out here telling the people there's just one single correct answer. I can read the text or I can look at history and I can answer the question for all of us. Instead, he's saying his opinions are much more um, cautious. They're saying, here are good arguments on both sides. He's almost admitting, you know, we might get it wrong. And in all these big cases, he's saying, if we get it wrong, here's what the losing side can still do. Right. So if Donald, if we rule against Donald Trump on one of these subpoena cases, here's what he can do. He can go to state court and bring up state law defenses. He doesn't need the Constitution uh, uh, or the Supreme Court to rescue him. If we rule against uh, um, uh, if we rule in favor of LGBTQ rights and under Title seven. Right. Um, employers who want to discriminate or fire a person because of their sexual orientation, um, they might have legal defenses based in a federal statute or in the in the First Amendment religion clauses. Right. They have all these other strategies. Um, and what ends up happening is when opinions are written in this written in kind of this measured tone, both sides have good arguments. We're going to rule this way. But here are all the options we want to leave open to the losing side. Um People aren't that upset because they don't have to assail the Supreme Court, assault its integrity. They can just go take advantage of all these options the courts left open to them. And I think that's a big part of why after uh, those big stretch of rulings in 2020, the court is so popular. So I I see this sort of, uh, and the book talks about this sort of line of cases as a promising approach. And so I want to write about basically applaud the chief and the court for taking this kind of modest approach. Um, and then all everything, you know, hell breaks loose, our Justice Ginsburg passes away. And so, you know, I need to rewrite much of the book. And it's a much, um, I think, darker future now. Um, but that uh, that's a long way of answering sort of where the book came from and, you know, what the materials were. No, that's a great origin story. And thank you for sharing it in that detail. It's really important. People listen to this podcast for the ideas, but people also listen to it as authors and people who are curious as to how it is do authors just have an idea and then find the evidence for it? Or do they see something that interests them and then that idea comes out of it? So it, 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 it's, it's always essential to sort of get that story out. And I think what's very interesting uh, from a political science perspective on the, on the exact same moment that you're attracted to is that the replacement of Justice Ginsburg and the thwarting of the normal constitutional processes by the Republican Senate leaders is what's very, very curious to them as sort of a moment of uh, rule breaking that is is not new. It's not that there's never been political movers like this, but this was kind of bald, especially given, you know, Justice Ginsburg's position uh, on the Supreme Court, the second woman, an an elder statesman, and the timing of the election. So it and it and it is interesting, given what you end up writing in the book, that you know that election is not what decides the Supreme Court. So it's another way in which we have to look at the extent to which uh, the people can can have control. They could have had quite a bit of control about this. Her replacement could have been an issue in the election. Instead, it was not. And um, uh, in the same, in the same way because of the, of the quick replacement with justice Barrett, but, but let's get to the least harm principle. We've sure. made people wait far too long <laughs> for this. Um, the book has two parts. The first is diagnostic. The first is like, how did we get here? It didn't happen all at once. As you said earlier, waves is a good word for it. Um, once we understand something about it and we know that overconfidence is one of the things we need to look at, what is it about 
first of all, explain the least harm principle, because it has several components, as you explain it in, in the book. And it helps us understand what you want, which is a more humble court, a less overconfident court. So let's just start with the least harm principle. And it's fine if we get into some of the cases, if that makes it easier for you to demonstrate it. But but let's get that out there. Sure, you bet. Um, so I think maybe the best way to illustrate the least harm principle is, and why I think it's an attractive way that the court has used already to decide cases, right? So just to be clear, this is not some theory that like I'm coming up with, I, like I, you know, like I think I'm some mad magician. I would be guilty of overconfidence myself if I thought I could invent some new theory that could solve all our problems, right? What I instead am trying to do is look out at periods where the court has issued uh, decisions on very contentious, divisive issues and the American people have been like, oh, okay, that's fine. Actually, we're not upset, right? Because that's what we want. That's what we want today when the court issues decisions on all these big issues. So um, a case that illustrates it, it's a case that I disagree with the outcome. It's a Supreme Court decision that has a very conservative outcome. Five conservative justices rule in favor of the right to life against the right to die. Four liberal justices are in dissent. So as a progressive myself, I disagree with the outcome, but I still think it's maybe the most important, maybe one of the best written Supreme Court opinions in recent history. It's a case called uh, Cruzan versus uh, Missouri uh, Department of Health. And this case starts out of a tragedy, as many Supreme Court cases do. There's a woman named Nancy Cruzan who's driving home from her night shift at a job on an icy road in Missouri in January. Her car flips. She's thrown out of the front of the windshield. She lands face down in a ditch, and she's got a, a very traumatic brain injury. Right? By the time paramedics get there, her, she's, her brain's been without oxygen for 12 or 14 minutes. She should be brain dead. Um, remarkably, she has some motor function left, so she's put on... Um, uh, life support, artificial nutrition, artificial hydration, um, but doctors quickly identify that she's in a persistent vegetative state. Right? So for seven years uh, after that point, no cognitive function, no hope of recovering it. Um, uh, she's sitting in the hospital, Missouri. And her parents say, you know what, Nancy would not want to have lived this way. Um, we'd like to get a court order allowing us to withdraw treatment. And the state of Missouri objects and says, no, all you've got is a little bit of evidence of an offhand conversation with a roommate uh, to suggest she might have wanted to have with treatment withdrawn. We're not going to let you pull uh, her treatment unless you have clear and convincing evidence. And they don't have that at the time. So the case gets it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the question is whether Missouri's demand for clear and convincing evidence violates uh, the due process clause, a person's liberty interest in dying with dignity, right? The right to die. And if this were today's court, you could imagine five or six justices looking at the state of the law in 1868 and counting up how many states allowed you know parents to withdraw treatment, right? Um, or, or whether parents own their daughters. Or, or exactly, right? In sort of arcane 19th century um, norms and misogyny, right? women didn't even have the right to vote. But we, you know, perhaps that might be an approach today and say, you know, here's the single correct answer: there's no right to die at all, right? Liberals might say, well, what do the American people think now? Somewhat more Americans believe that we should be able to withdraw, right? Society has evolved. So we now think there's a new constitutional right. Maybe there wasn't one before. Um, the Supreme Court in the Cruzandis case, the, its opinion doesn't do any of those things. It says, gosh, this is hard. Morally, if anybody should have the right to withdraw treatments, these parents who are loving. On the other hand, the state has this really important interest in protecting people's life. We might get this case wrong. No matter what decision we issue, there's a good chance we're going to get it wrong. So what if we get it wrong on either side? What happens next? And the court says, first, if we rule against the state of Missouri, we allow Nancy's parents to withdraw treatment, 
And we were wrong because the Constitution didn't require us to do that or because Nancy actually didn't want to die. You can't fix that. That's an irrevocable injury. Nancy will be dead and you can't go back in time and put her back on life support. That's unfixable. What if we rule against Nancy and her parents? What happens then? So all that means is she's still on treatment, um, but maybe she doesn't want to be or she has a right, constitutional right not to be. In that event, look at all the things that could still happen. Voters could persuade the Missouri legislature to get rid of the clear and convincing evidence standard. They could find new evidence about her wishes. Um, uh, All other Americans who are in a similar, worried that they might be in a similar situation themselves, they can draft living wills, which many people have, I hope all listeners have, uh, uh, specifying in the case they are in a persistent vegetative state, a surrogate will make decisions for them, or they prefer just to have treatment withdrawn, right? You get to make a choice for yourself. Um, So we're going to rule this way, not because we think the Constitution requires it or we magically know the answer, but because if we rule for Missouri, Nancy, other people have options to redress their harm. And sort of the beautiful coda to the story, the uh, uh, after the Supreme Court issues its decision, um, two women who worked with Nancy uh, at an earlier point in her life saw her picture on on, on the TV. Uh, CNN was covering the case and like, oh, we know her. That's that's Nancy. Um, and they listened about what the case was about. They're like, oh, remember when we had that conversation with Nancy about how she would never want to live life as a vegetable, you know, she used the term vegetable. Um, and so they testified in Missouri trial court. And even the state of Missouri agreed after that testimony that, yes, there was clear and convincing evidence that Nancy would not have wanted to uh, be on life support for this in this way. Treatment was withdrawn. She died peacefully just six months after the Supreme Court decision. Millions of Americans have avoided this problem through living wills, right? So even the most angry liberals who support the right to die were pretty much like, oh, the Supreme Court did just fine there. We, you know, we have all these other ways to avoid our harm. That's the least harm principle uh, in a case. And as an example, uh, it's the kind of approach the court could take more broadly too. That's terrific. Thanks so much for going through it. And I, I want to say as a footnote, it's interesting that you're saying you're progressive, uh, I think the book is written in a way that makes that not that easy to discern. And I think that's, I mean, that is a compliment. I think that this is written in a, in, in a, in a way that is attempting to step back from overconfidence. You, you said that yourself, you're trying not to be an overconfident offer. I think you're also trying, even though you're not focusing on partisanship, to also step back there. I found it very, very fair. As I read these things, I sometimes think like, could I give this to a student it's harder to give them something where uh, they would have they would have to strip out uh, the partisanship. So so well done on constructing that kind of a book. Um, and the Cruzan case is is a is a is an interesting one and a, a good one for uh, for people to be reminded of. You you mentioned that the voters in Missouri could change things. Um, Right now in 2023, uh, gerrymandering is not new. Gerrymandering has been around since Elbridge Gerry, a signer at the Declaration of Independence, made up a borough that looked a a lot like a a kind of a a crazy dragon monster thing, salamander, whatever it was supposed to be. Um, However, gerrymandering is, uh, by the measure of many, many scholars, in a very special place right now. And again, because of the kind of data that was not available to people in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, legislators are of the minority party are able to slice and dice to pack and crack 
voters so that in a state, let's not pick Missouri because it's not true, but in states like Wisconsin can in fact take a state that's 50-50 in terms of its party makeup and make the legislature look like it's predominantly uh, Republican, is predominantly Republican, and therefore that is a reflection of the people. So does does gerrymander politics get in the way of what I think is a crucial piece to your argument? There, there seem to be two parts. One is the court has to stop. So the court has to behave a little bit more like uh, Owen Roberts or John Roberts. So this is like, you want Roberts-type courts. Um, <laughs> And, and they can come at it either way. Owen Roberts was feeling an, uh, an external pressure. Uh, John Roberts, mm, we're not sure why John Roberts does what he does. Some of it seems to be about institutional integrity, reputation. These are all things that George Washington worried about too. So, so not to get inside the head of John Roberts, but are we in a different political moment that makes sure. it much, much harder to accomplish what you want? So you want the judges to stop and adopt this more Cruzan style, at least harm approach. And you know, it's there and you know that conservatives and liberals can both adopt it. Yeah. But on the other hand, you are depending on the people providing a certain kind yeah. of pressure. And I, I'm yes. wondering if you think, is, is that the same as it was in so 1937. So good. So you've put your finger on, I think, the the biggest challenge, right? So um, I th there are two parts of the question, right? So uh, let me just identify what the two parts are, and I'll talk to one of them, and maybe we can come back to the other, right? So I, I take the question to be like, um, maybe, you know, listening to uh, the Cruzan case and how the court resolved it, maybe someone's like, yeah, that sounds like a good way, a better way of answering deciding hard cases and originalism or living constitutionalism. Um two problems with it. One is how are we ever going to get the court to do this, right? Um, <clears throat> maybe John Roberts is there, but we need somebody else, right? So is it realistic, uh, plausible to get Amy Coney Barrett or uh, Brett Kavanaugh to join along? I think let's talk about that too. I think at the end of the book, I talk about how at the end, we're only going to ever hold justices accountable as people if we do what the American people did in 1937, vote in numbers against the court, protest, threaten real structural reform of the Supreme Court, make make it make put the justices to the same choice that Owen Roberts faced, right? Um, so we'll talk about it in a second. I think your second question is like, well, maybe the least harm principle worked in 1990 in Missouri because part gerry, partisan gerrymandering wasn't as problematic. But now that state legislatures and Congress is so frankly broken, dysfunctional, how realistic is it to say that after the Supreme Court issues a decision, the people can just fix that mistake through the political process? Right, so that would be a problem with the least harm principle itself. It would be suggesting that actually there no, is no way to overcome Supreme Court decisions we don't like. Um, so that's where I want to set, distinguish. I think you're right. It's a very astute question. There are two different kinds of responses that the Supreme Court sometimes leaves open after it issues a decision using the least harm principle where it recognizes we don't know the answer. It's a hard question. One kind of uh, response is say, oh, go back to the legislature. If the people don't like the decision we, we've made, they can fix it through ordinary politics. And I think you're right that that doesn't really work anymore, right? So this an example of this is Dobbs, actually, the abortion case from last year. The Supreme Court arguably makes a kind of least harm move and says, 
all we're doing is returning the issue of abortion to the states. If, you know, people want a right to abortion in Mississippi and Texas and Louisiana, they should just, you know, vote for it. Their legislatures will respond and we'll have a right to abortion everywhere. Um, or Congress can maybe enact a statute of those question whether the Supreme Court would actually uphold it. Um, and obviously that is a red herring. It's 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 not realistic for all the reasons you say 16 states have abortion bans. And even though 50 plus percent of Americans support right to abortion in Texas and even the deepest red states, right, their lawmakers are not responsive. So politics is broken. Although actually, I, I, I think that you should push forward on that. I think actually Dobbs may be the saving grace for your argument that in fact, what the Supreme Court did is go so far out of bounds. Just, just get it wrong in such a extreme way, the exact opposite. There's no more overconfident uh, opinion than both Justice Alito and Justice Thomas's. They're 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 both you know poster children for what you're talking about. And that's a situation in which if it does go back to the states, in fact, you're seeing conservative states overturn what the Supreme Court said. The question will be whether the court further interferes. In other words, do do they stand by the principle that they set? But I think that's one in which, look, the numbers on uh, uh, reproductive uh, access uh in the United States are very, very consistent, and they have been consistent for decades and decades and decades. Not that the court was looking at that, but most Americans agree that abortion should be legal. They may disagree on the situations in which and just how to deliver it, but they they don't think that it should, it's only a small percentage who think it should actually be completely illegal. So I think that's one in which we will see what happens in this next election and whether, in fact, that issue will translate. Because one of the issues in your book is that, is it, you're a good law professor. You know, you think the court matters a lot and you think that Americans you know, know what happens in a lot of these cases. And they don't always. They depend upon the press. They depend upon other public officials. They depend upon religious leaders filtering some of these decisions that very few Americans read to them to understand why it impacts their lives. And so I I think this next presidential election will be a very interesting referendum on Dobbs and whether or not it is possible. Similarly with Brune, although Brune never got the attention that Dobbs got in part because it came out the same year as Dobbs. So, but this upcoming case, Rahimi, may actually be one in which if the court were to truly be overconfident and rule in Rahimi's favor, I think you could see a similar pushback. Um, yes, again, we've done that's... a lot of podcasts on Rahimi on this sh- on this show. So everybody is, uh, has been educated on domestic violence and firearms, but if not, they can listen to one of the other podcasts. Anyway, that's all just to support you. I, I actually think that's possible, but but you I had more right. to say. No, that's good. No, I, I hope that's right. And right, that kind of, that almost speaks to sort of the second part a little bit, right? If the American public is ever to get angry enough to really threaten the court, it will be because of decisions like Dobbs and potentially cases like Rahimi, if the Supreme Court truly holds that we can't disarm domestic violent offenders because domestic violence was rampant in 1868, but no no laws disarmed them then, uh, would be a truly remarkable and and dangerous, destructive ruling. Um, So yeah, so I think that's the best hope we've got. The the one thing I just wanted to, the point I wanted to wrap up. I'll just say say one thing, because it was our last podcast. 
they would be saying that even though historians have shown that, in fact, the state did take care of domestic violence in 1868 and 1791. So uh, we have our Laura Shepard interview because historians look past the sort of state statutes at local practice and look at the magistrates and what they were doing. And in fact, people who were beaten did go to a magistrate and said, John just hit me. And then the magistrate would say like, okay, let's go get John. So it's actually not that women were what Blackstone said they were. They're not necessarily legally non-existent, even though the statutes or the Supreme Court might not say as much. So wait, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, all that. Anyway, yeah. You've got, you got bigger points to make here. No, no, I just, the, the, that's a lovely point. I'm glad you mentioned it. The, um, the only thing I wanted to tie up is that if uh, ordinary politics, legislatures are gerrymandered and are not really available to losing groups to remedy their harms that the Supreme Court imposes, there's a second type of strategy that doesn't rely on democracy, on legislative action uh, at all. And here's actually why I think the Cruzan case is such a good example of it. Sometimes when the Supreme Court issues a decision, the losing group can protect itself through its own private action, you know, economists might call it private ordering. You don't need to go to the state and have them pass a new law to fix your problem. Cruzan's the example because for most Americans, if you were upset that the Supreme Court did not recognize a right to die in the Cruzan case, you didn't need to go lobby your legislature. All you had to do was enact a living will, which was all, they were already recognized, uh, respected, um, upheld. Um, so just with your own hands, I guess two witnesses, right, you could um, fix this problem for yourself. Right, Cruzan's fa- own family, Nancy's parents, were able to solve their own problem. Right, they couldn't go back and have Nancy sign a living will, but they found more evidence. Right, maybe that's a little uh, um, uh, fortuitous, right, for the for purposes of the theory. It's a just so type story, but the idea is you don't need to go to politics. You don't need to per- persuade a ger- gerrymandered legislature. Um, those are the kinds of solutions I think the court would really do well to point towards. Right, there are solutions like. You know, after the Supreme Court's decision in 2018 in a case called Janus versus American Federation of State Council and Municipal Employees, which gutted public sector unions, um, oddly, five years later, people were predicting that that was going to cripple public sector unions. Public sector unions have lost maybe 1% of their members, not the 20 or 30% that were predicted, because unions have been so good at organizing. Workers have had conversations, right? They didn't need to go get new laws to rescue them. They could just talk to their coworkers about the importance of the union. These kinds of private ordering approaches for fixing our harms, as long as the Supreme Court's leaving those options open, right? That's how I really think the least harm principle can function. And in terms of the uh, of something like abortion or guns, how how would public public ordering work? What would it look like? Yeah. Uh, so for abortion, I think the private ordering answer probably looks like what the chief justice did in his concurring opinion um, in in Dobbs, right? So remember, the majority says there's no right to abortion at all. We can look at these statutes in 1868, many of which it got wrong. I've written about separately, but we can look at the statutes in 1868. There's no right to abortion. The three dissenting justices, the liberal justices, no, no, meaning of the Constitution evolves over time. The, you know, the sweep of our decision suggests there's a new right to abortion. And the chief justice says, I'm not as confident as either side, right? We all know personally as a Catholic, um, a, an ardent pro-life personal, from a personal viewpoint, the chief opposes abortion very, very str- um, strongly. But he writes this remarkable opinion, says, I read the Constitution. I'm not so sure as either side. So here's what I would do. I would recognize a right to abortion 
up to 15 weeks, which is all that we've been decided to ask, because that's what Mississippi's ban in that case was about. So I would get rid of the 24-week rule that Roe sets. So that's a real loss to, to you know, to my team, right, if you will, right? I, um, uh, but, the, but listen to what the chief, why the chief justice would do that. He says, if we change the rule from 24 to 15 weeks, yes, it affects pregnant individuals who choose to have abortions after 15 weeks. But those individuals can use private ordering. They don't need to change, convince Texas lawmakers to uh, recognize the right to abortion, which will never happen. They can choose to have abortions earlier. Right. And that's true for many who have elective so-called elective abortions after 15 weeks. It's also true that some individuals don't find out they're pregnant until after 15 weeks. So that doesn't quite work for the chief. And that would be a real problem. Right. But it's a different kind of opinion or travel restrictions. So what would have to happen with that approach would be that the court would also have to rule that anybody can leave their state to do anything they want. And I'm not sure that they would say that you can travel to get an abortion. And also, it. and again, we don't want to get into the weeds on abortion, but I, you know, I, I, I think this is a really interesting distinction uh, to sort of apply this, like, is this a private ordering? Can I do anything about gun safety? Because it's now been taken, I'm here in New Jersey, we had really, in my opinion, great gun laws, and now we don't. And that's because the Supreme Court took away that option from the voters in New Jersey. So, what could we do in terms of private ordering? D- does private ordering for in your within your definition also include social movement? Because because as I read the book, you know, and I'm 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 on your s- side. I love this idea of you know the people rising up, but I'm uh, cautious, and the caution comes from the fact that the FDR supermajority required the segregationist. Democratic South to be on board. It's part of why uh, FDR is such a terrible president when it comes to issues of race, in terms of not passing anti-lynching legislation, of not taking care of desegregation, all because he wanted that supermajority to accomplish other aims, or he didn't care as much about race as many people wished he, he did. So we're not looking at any kind of a majority like, like that for a variety of reasons. We, we, we no longer have a segregationist Democratic Party that moves with the progressive Democratic Party. Part of that segregationist Democratic Party was also progressive. Not everybody's happy to sort of think about that, but they were. So I, I think that's really hard, yet you seem to have more than just the vote on your mind. You're talking about this kind of, you know, private ways. And the Cruzan is such an interesting case. Um, so yeah, I think your question, so I think social movements are um, the kind of in the middle of private versus public ordering. A lot of times social movements have as a goal, law reform, sweeping change to the law. Um, but there are things that people can do, you know, to put pressure on lawmakers. I, but I think most of the private ordering that I'm thinking about is genuinely the Supreme Court would look would do this. It would say, gosh, gun safety, gun rights. This is a really hard case. On the one hand, yes, the text of the Second Amendment does speak of a right to keep and bear arms. There's the prefatory clause about militia. It's hard. The history is hard, right? The policy question is hard. And so it would say, well, if we rule against gun owners and say you don't have a right to carry a gun in public, what could they do 
to protect their self-claimed interest in self-defense versus what could you and I do, Susan, if we, you know, I don't own a gun, I never will. What can I do to protect myself if now you know thousands of Americans are walking now around? Now your students have them, yeah, for exactly. example. Public like, carry, right? We, we, both give, we both give lectures in which we make people feel uncomfortable. Well, will we give the same lectures? Will people stand out in public and give the same political speeches knowing that everybody is has the right to be present with a firearm? Exactly. I don't know that there's anything you and I can do short of ch- completely changing our lives, locking ourselves up in our homes to avoid gun violence. But the thing that the Supreme Court, if it cared about least harm in Bruin, which it obviously didn't, it would say, well, gosh, a person who wants to carry a gun around in public because they're worried that somebody's going to jump out from the bushes and attack them or whatever, Right. They can carry around a non-lethal mo- uh, form of self-defense, a taser, right? Other forms of ways of protecting themselves that don't lead to, you know, mass casualties. Um, they have that approach. There's other ways to protect yourself than a than a you know semi-automatic handgun, right? Um, doesn't the court doesn't ask that question? Um, unfortunately. And and Kagan really pushed very very hard to have this on the record that in fact New York State with their hundred year old granted, and I think it was 99% of all of the applications that they got. And in fact, you know, of the men, uh, one of them got exactly what he wanted and one of them got almost exactly what he wanted. So it, it's an, it, an interest. I, I really like this way of thinking about what does each side have at stake if the court decides. Um, and I also agree with you that in Brune, I don't see any of the justices able to do that. Uh, perhaps Roberts is sometimes able to do it, but actually there seem to be particular yeah. cases um, in well, to, which- to the and, chief you know, and, and maybe Justice Kavanaugh's credit, they join a concurring opinion where they talk about public ordering. And actually in this circumstance, the public ordering responses, remember public ordering, I'm referring to laws, new laws that people can push for, uh, lawmakers can enact. It's actually not crazy. Because the only laws that are being struck down are blue state gun restrictions, California, New Jersey, New York, Maryland, that in Bruin, at least, um, required a showing of special need before anybody could carry a gun in public. And so their public avoidance isn't crazy. It's like, well, what could these blue states do instead of uh, limiting public carry permits? And so the chief and Kavanaugh have some options. And so um, it depends on what the Supreme Court is going to do in the future. But they say you could have universal background checks, right? Um, uh, You could have firearms training courses, potentially, they don't say it by name, but I think some good enterprising cities have required insurance carrying requirements to make it more costly to carry guns. They talk about sensitive places laws, right? So people can carry guns in public, but you can limit uh, can't carry a gun where alcohol is being served. A large venue, right? California Governor Newsom just signed a law with 26 of these sensitive places yesterday, right? So um, the chief and I think Justice Kavanaugh tried there. They didn't have private ordering type approaches. Um, so hopefully that this is a sign that the court would allow these other kinds of gun safety measures uh, to be enforced. So before we close, I want to ask you two things that you can answer, either one or both. Uh, Has anything changed since you wrote the book that either makes you more confident or less confident in its conclusions? And is there something that was really important to you in the writing of this book that we haven't had a chance to discuss? Yeah. Well, I, you know, maybe all this talk of overconfidence, it, it might be sound trite to say it, but I'm never confident in my conclusion, Susan. I'm, I'm, every time I read a new opinion, I'm like, oh, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, that, maybe that's not maybe so Maybe that's true. a good sign. Uh, maybe, yeah. Um, I think what I want to say is 
you know, at, this is a really dangerous moment for America. The Supreme Court is vitally important because if people don't trust the court, we all we already don't trust the Congress. We already don't trust the executive, the president. Right. If we don't have any trust in any of our major institutions, the referees in our democratic game. Right. Why would people keep playing by the rules? Why wouldn't they just try to overthrow the government if you know they don't get the president they want when the president loses the electoral vote? Right. So the Supreme Court's of vital importance. I am, there are times when I'm like, I get it on the, on, many of my friends on the left are like, why are we taking this? Why don't we pack the court? Why don't we strip it of all power, you know, impose term limits, do all of the above. And I, I get that. And I think we ought to be talking about threatening those things with the hope that the justices will humble and discipline themselves. Um, but at the end of the day, I prefer that. I hope the pressure will do will put will put the uh, 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 chief justice and another conservative in the position of Owen Roberts in 1937, because I think that is better than actually, for example, packing the courts, right? Because um, you know this is at the end of the day why I wrote the book. I have a daughter; she's she's four now. The only thing that's scarier to me than the idea of Sam Alito telling her what she can do with her body is the idea of seven Sam Leo's telling her that uh, what she can do with her body. And that's the world we will have if we pack the court now. The Republicans, when they have the chance, will pack the court then. Um, so my hope is to think of ways that we can um, stem the tide. We can make things a little bit better before we get to that point. And if, even if it sounds unrealistic, I think the best chance we have is for somebody like Brett Kavanaugh to join the chief and saying, gosh, I would rather be a moderate, less harm-doing justice on a credible nine-member court than a justice in the minority of a packed and delegitimized court, right? So I'm going to, you know, dial down my overconfidence. That's the hope uh, and the ultimate motivation of the book. Well, thanks so much for a not overconfident, incredibly insightful and humble interview. Um, I've been talking to Aaron Tang, the author of Supreme Hubris, How Overconfidence is Destroying the Court and How We Can Fix It from Yale University Press 2023. Thanks, Thanks so much, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Susan.